Welcome to Grace, everybody. It's good to see you this weekend. Welcome everybody watching online. Thanks for being with us as well. Uh, before I jump into our conversation this weekend, I want to just double click on this uh, Feed My Starving Children effort. Um, so on Memorial Day is what we call the Grace Race. And uh, what the Grace Race is, it's a 5K out of Copley High School. There's a fun run for the kids, all kinds of like family activities. You'll have a blast doing that. Um, and you can walk it, run it, whatever you want to do. The Grace Race is a fundraiser for Feed My Starving Children. Feed My Starving Children is a famine relief effort, okay? So the Grace Race, we need to raise about $125,000. The Grace Race does that, or if you want to give to it, you can give to it. Um, but what we'll do with that is we will purchase about a million meals for famine relief. So when you think about uh, what we do with Feed My Starving Children, um, think of like a drought or a war or something like that. These, these are the kids with kind of the, the bloated bellies kind of a thing. So this is on the ground, first in famine relief uh, to help these kids until we can get kind of sustainable resources uh, to them. And so what Grace will do is we'll buy those meals, um, about a million of them. Uh, we will, when you give to the Grace Race or give to Feed My Starving Children, 94 cents of every dollar goes directly toward the food because we are the workforce that will pack the food up. And so be a part of the Grace Race, that's a blast. But what I really want you kind of thinking through is the week after that, after Memorial Day that week, we're going to have packing events where we will pack one million meals to send out across the world. And in order to do that, we need about 5,000 volunteers. There's about 5,000 volunteer slots that will come together and pack those meals. And that's what I really asking you to take a little time and lock into. So I want you to do three things, okay? One, right now I want you to get your phone, go ahead and get off Snapchat and uh, pull up the Grace Church app. And right at the top of the Grace Church app, you'll see a place to sign up for one of the packing events, one of the volunteer slots. So do that, please. Uh, open that up. I want you to sign up. Number two thing, I want you to sign up and your family to sign up, okay? So if you have a five or a six-year-old and up, they actually are very helpful, even at that young age, in the packing event. The way that we set it up and organize it, they, they can do that in a meaningful way. And so it is a great opportunity as a family. It's fun to do and uh, something that the kids are actually valuable and involved with. The third thing I want you to do is to bring your friends. So get it out on Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff and, and invite folks. Talk to your, your CrossFit box, talk to your softball team, talk to your friends, kidnap someone maybe, I don't know. Uh, but 5,000 slots is a lot of slots to fill. So we really need all hands on deck to, to do this, okay? So we need, a, we need a little bit of help to finish paying for it. If you want to donate to it, you can. But we need a ton of help to actually pack it and get the meals out, and then they'll hit those famine re relief things, okay? So that event's fun. It's a couple hours. We'll put on some, like, 80s dance music and uh, have some fun. You get your customized hairnet. It's a blast. I promise you'll have uh, fun doing it. But please try to get that on your radar and on your schedule for that week so we can get that going, okay? Is that a deal? That's a deal. I'll take that as a yes. Thank you. And that's a deal, and we'll have fun doing it. Okay, so we're in a conversation called Right Now. And uh, in this Right Now series, what we're talking about is taking advantage of the right now 
that God has you in. And we said this, that wherever God has you in your life, God has you there for a purpose right now. Doesn't mean that you'll be in this place forever. It just means that God has you here and he has you here on purpose right now for two main things. Uh, He wants to do something in you. That's what God does in the moment. He does something in us. So the Apostle James says he he, uh, matures us and completes us so that we're not lacking anything. And so whatever you're in right now, God wants to work in you. And then we said the other big reason God has you in the right now that he has you in is because he wants to do something through you. So you're never in your right now by yourself. There's other people in your right now with you, and God has you there in their life for a reason, so that you can affect their life, so that you can be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, so you can love as you've been loved, forgive as you've been forgiven, all the things that the Bible teaches us about. And we said it's really important, and it's really fun to capture your right now and to lock into that and take advantage of it. The reasons we don't, kind of the temptations that we can fall into if we're not careful, is we can buy into some of the myths that affect us in our culture and in our life. So we said there's three main myths. One is uh, the arrival myth, that someday when I graduate from high school or college or I get married or we get that house or I get that dream job, someday my life will be what I want it to be. And if we buy into the arrival myth, what happens is we'll so long for the future that we'll miss the moment we're in right now. Uh, the second myth, we call it the nostalgia myth, and that's the, that's the idea of living backwards. Back then, man, life was great. Back when I was in college, back when we were first married, back when the kids were young, back when I was a high school JV baseball star. Just a little personal sharing right there. Like back, back, back then, you know, my life was fantastic. And we said the same thing. It's great to remember the past, but if we live back there longing for it, we'll miss the right now. And then the third myth we talked about was, we, we called it the filtered life myth. It's what we do on social media. Uh, social media is great, but what we do with it naturally is we post the highlights of our life on social media, which is what makes it fun. And if we look at all kind of that filtered life, we'll, we'll start to think that that's reality. And we'll start to long for other people's lives. Look how happy their family is. We just forget that they were screaming at each other right before the picture was taken, right? Look at their vacation. Look at their dessert. Their dessert's so much better than my dessert, right? Look at their cat. Their cat's amazing. It plays the keyboard. Like, so we'll, we'll look at those kind of things. And what happens is we'll forget that the blessed life is a life without a cat in it, right? And so like you'll, you'll kind of forget that this moment God has me in right now. Their, their moments are great too, but there's actually a lot of wonder and joy in my moment. If I'm always comparing myself to somebody else, I miss the blessings of my right now. So we've been saying, how do we capture this stuff? How do we lock into the right now? And the way we've been talking about it is we've kind of breaking this into like life stages, okay? So uh, last weekend with Mother's Day, we talked about parenting. How do I lock into the right now of parenting? Uh, next weekend, we're gonna talk about being a student, high school, college, grad school. How do I lock into the right now of being a student? But this weekend, the guys wanted us to talk about midlife. How do we talk, of, how do we lock into the right now of midlife. And when they came up with the idea for midlife, they're like, hmm, who should teach the midlife conversation? Jeff, you're in midlife. And actually, I'm not. I'm past midlife. Bogues don't live real long. So I better get this out while I'm still around to do it, right? So 
how do we lock into the right now of midlife? Now, this is the way you want to kind of interact with this. Most of us aren't at midlife. Most people here at Grace Church are too young to be at midlife. Some of us are past midlife. So the way that I'm just going to use midlife as the example, what you guys want to think about is any part of your life where you're at the peak, okay? So you might be at the peak of high school, right? Maybe you're about ready to graduate even today or the peak of college or you're, you're the captain of the varsity team, you, you made it. Maybe you're at the peak of, of a certain part of your journey in your career where you're managing the department and you, you're about ready to get promoted to the next level. Maybe you're at the peak of parenting where, where you have kind of the most influence on your kids right now. Maybe you're at the peak of grandparenting. So just think about kind of, if it doesn't apply directly to you, my examples that I'm going to use, just think of it life that way. If I'm at the peak of my potential, the peak of my influence, the peak of my credibility, what do I do in those moments when I'm at the peak? Why did God allow me to get to the peak? What does He want me to do with the peak of my influence? And how do I invest that ultimately for his cause and his kingdom? Now, this, this is what, the reason we pick midlife is because of the way that the American dream kind of works. So I call this graph the curve of the American dream, okay? And the curve of the American dream is this idea that if I could get my life to play out exactly the way that I want it to play out, right? So it, it's the way that we think in our culture. It's not good, it's not bad, it just is, right? There's benefits, there's downsides, it's just the way that it is. But if I could get my life to play out the ideally the way I want it to with no interruptions and no bumps in a road, we tend to think of life something like this graft, okay? So we would look and say, zero to 18, that part of life just drags on because everything we want to do, we're not allowed to do yet, right? So I get, well, how long ago? Why can't I date? Can I finally have my cell phone? I can't wait to drive. I can't wait to get out of this high school. I can't wait to get away from my parents who don't know anything. Like all that's happening, right, in that zero to 18. In our culture, it's not good, it's not bad, it just kind of is. In our culture right now, we kind of embrace adulthood between 18 and 21, somewhere in there. That's when we tend to start thinking of ourselves as kind of independent, off dad or mom's nickel kind of a thing, and, and I'm going to kind of start making my own life, right? So whether I, I got a job or I went to college or whatever I did, somewhere in there we start to lock in. And then from 21 to 40, how we tend to think as North Americans is we think of that as the climb. I just called it the climb. So 21 to 40 is when we look and say, this is where I, uh, there's a place I really want to be, and I have to go from 21 to 40 to get to where I really want to be. So in 21 to 40, most people get married, a lot of people have kids, you're starting a job and you're trying to find the career path that you actually want. Maybe you're doing a residency or something like that, right? You're kind of in that, that move. You get your starter house, you get your starter car, you get mom and dad's basement furniture to furnish your starter house, right, kind of thing. So you're, you're not really where you want to be, you're on your way to where you want to be. And again, this is all ideally, right? Doesn't, obviously, it doesn't work this way for everybody, but this is just all idea. If we could plan our life, it's the way that it would work. And then the thinking is this, from 40 to 70, I'm at my peak. 
So it's midlife. I'm at my peak. Now I've got my job. Now I'm driving the car. Now we're living in the zip code that we want. Now, like my 2.5 kids have been born, unless you're in my family and it's like 9.11, right? So like, like so now all that kind of, kind of things I really want to do in my life, I, I kind of arrive and I start doing from 40 to 70. So that actually is true in a lot of ways. You probably from 40 to 70 are at the peak of your influence. Uh, you're at the peak of your credibility. You're at the, the peak of your earning potential, right? Most people make most of their money between 40 and 70. Um, you may be at the peak of your knowledge. You're, you tend to kind of get to the cutting edge and stay on it, and you're kind of at the peak of your career. You may be at the peak of your wisdom and your insight, because between 40 and 70, you're old enough that you've learned some things, right? So I'm 46, right? So I, I've been married, Heidi and I have been married coming up on 24 years. So we actually do know some things about being married, right? Uh, our kids are getting older. So if, especially if you have young kids, if you ask my advice about parenting, I'd be like, yeah, I actually do know some things about having some young kids. Ask Heidi. She knows lots of things. I know to ask Heidi, right? Th those kind of things. The, the, the dreams that we set in place, right? So uh, I, we started Grace Church when I was 28, Right? So now Grace Church is kind of becoming what I always thought it could become. See how that works? So we kind of hit that, that phase there. And then ideally, everything goes well. About 70-ish, give or take, what happens is you cash out. And then you go on vacation for the rest of your life. That's kind of the American dream. So you take all that money that you made and you try to invest it and blah, blah, blah. And then you, you hit 70 and, and you coast. You get out of your career. You might downsize, ask whatever you want to do. But the thought is, I want to prepare life so that I can do whatever I want to do in life for the rest of my life. Now, that's all ideal because that all can be broken up with, with anything, right? A divorce, uh, a death, a sickness, a, a downturn in the economy, all kinds of things can happen. But if we were able to plan our lives exactly the way that we want to plan our lives, it would look something like that. Now, in that 40 to 70 range, if you said, okay, that's kind of where our culture would say to go, which is fine, by the way, it's a fine thing. Then the second question you would ask is this, what would our culture teach us to do with our peak? And generally, what our, our culture would teach us to do is they would teach us to use our peak for ourselves. So I'm peaking, and I have the most credibility, the most money, the most influence, and I'm going to use that for myself. I'm going to feel good about myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get other people to do what I want them to do because I'm in charge now. Uh, I'm going to make the most money I ever make, so I'm going to buy what I want, which are generally newer versions of what I already have. So I'm going to buy the, the hood ornament I actually want. I'm going to buy the house, instead of our starter house, we're going to get the house we actually want, right? Instead of my 30-inch my TV, I'm going to get my 75-inch TV, Vizio, Sam's Club, about three grand, pastor appreciation month's coming up. <laughs> Saying if we all pulled our resources right now. See, but, but you look and you're like, hey, I, I make enough money. I'd like to have that now. I'd like to have that boat. I'd like to take that vacation. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. Don't hear me wrong. None of that's just a sin. It's just the way that we're taught to think. I hit my peak so that I can use my peak on myself. Well, as a Christ follower with the mind of Christ, I, I would want to sit down and say, okay, 
is that why God brought me to my peak? Did, did God make me captain of the high school football team so I could be a jerk about it? Or would he want me to do something else with it? Did, did God make, give me the, the highest degree of influence and control I'm gonna have over my kids so that I can control them? Or would he have me invest that differently? How do I invest my peak? And how do I take what God has given me and use it for the Lord and his cause? How do I invest midlife, not just move through it, not just take from it, how do I utilize it for Christ and his cause? And that's what I wanna walk us through a little bit this weekend and help us to see what God may want us to do at our peak and how he may want us to think for, uh, for eternity and invest in him, okay? So I wanna show you this. If you have a Bible, grab them, open them up to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. And if you don't have a Bible or something in the chairs, you can have one of those. It's page 292. And those Bibles or everything's on the app. If you want to use the app, you'll find all the verses there. First Chronicles chapter 22. And what I want to do is I want to introduce you to a guy named David. So this is King David. So King David is top three biggest deals in the Old Testament, right? He's a big, big person in the Old Testament. This is the same David of David and Goliath fame, if you know that story, where the, the teenager goes and kills the giant, saves the country. This is, that's David. So King David has gone on this amazing life. He's, he's a human being, so he's done great. He's blown it in big ways. He really nailed it with some of his kids. Some of his kids malfunctioned on him. He just lives kind of this human story. But at the end of his life, at his peak, God does say, this is a man after my own heart. So this is David at his peak. And at the peak of his life, David has achieved kind of everything that he dreamed of achieving. So he has defeated all of his enemies. So Israel, the country that David rules, is now the superpower of its, of its region. He has enormous wealth. He can do anything with his money that he wants to do with it. Enormous power, enormous influence, enormous wisdom, enormous credibility and, and, and a great relationship with God. So like David, like one life and he's at the peak of all those things, okay? At the peak of his life, he looks at God and he says, hey God, I, in essence, I, I've achieved all this kind of stuff. Most of it's earthly. I wanna do something eternal and significant for you. God, what I wanna do is I wanna build a temple for you. And in the Old Testament before Jesus came, the way that people interacted with God was they would go to the temple. And the temple was the place where the spirit of God or the presence of God would reside and the priests would offer sacrifices and all these kind of things. So David looks and says, God, I wanna build a, the, a house of the Lord, a house of God where your presence is gonna be and I wanna take all of the wealth and the power and the influence that I have and give it for those purposes. God looked at David and said, David, I love your dream, but you're not gonna do it. You've shed too much blood. You've been a warrior your whole life. I don't want my name associated with a warrior. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna allow your son, Solomon, to build this temple. And David, what I want you to do is I want you to take the influence, the credibility, the power that you have at your peak, and I want you to tee up your son 
to do this great thing for me, for my name and my cause and for my glory. And I want to show you how David did this, and we'll draw some principles out of it for us here this weekend, okay? So, First Chronicles chapter 22, starting in verse 5, you see David kind of tee all this up. David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before his death. He looks and he says, my son Solomon, the next generation, he's young and he's inexperienced. Now listen, everybody in the next generation, listen to me. He didn't say he was dumb and inadequate. This isn't a patronizing statement. It's a factual one. He's just young. He's inexperienced. The, 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 he's never undergone a massive building project before. So he's young and inexperienced, but God wants him to do it. I'm going to help him. I'm going to take my peak, and I'm going to invest it in my son, and I'm going to invest it for the, the name and the cause of the Lord. And then we'll see how he did it. And um, we'll walk through how David and Solomon went through this process together, okay? So at your peak, how do you invest it for the Lord and His cause? Here's the first thing I, I observed as I was going through this passage, that at my peak, I need to use my credibility to affirm another's life investment. At my peak, I need to use my credibility to affirm another's life investment. Look how David does this in verse 11 of chapter 22, First Chronicles. He says this, now my son, he's talking directly to Solomon, his son. He says, now my son, the Lord be with you and may you have success and build the house of the Lord your God. As he said, you would. May the Lord give you discernment or, or discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord, the Lord your God. Then you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and the laws that the Lord gave to Moses for Israel. Be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. David looks at his son and says, son, listen. I'm asking that the Lord gives you success. And Solomon, listen, you're about ready to go on this massive project. You're about ready to take over the reins of a kingdom. And when you are in the throes of this project and you are in the stress of ruling this kingdom, I want you to know that I believe what you're doing is what God has called you to do. I want you to know that I believe God will give you success. I want you to know that I believe that God will grant you favor. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to be strong and courageous because I believe in you and I believe that God believes in you, son. And David took Solomon's respect and admiration for him and invested it. He affirmed his son in the calling that God had on his son's life. Here's the deal, guys. Listen, when you're at the peak, you are somebody's hero. That's the way life works. Somebody on the climb is looking at you, and they think you are the greatest thing that ever happened. If you're the big brother, your little brother thinks you're amazing. If you're the big sister, your little sister thinks you're amazing. If you're the head of the department, the intern or the resident thinks you're amazing. If you own the company, the guy coming up that wants to start his own company thinks that you're amazing. Fill in your blank. Who, wherever you're at, whatever peak you're at, there is somebody looking at you on your peak and thinking that you on that 
that peak is where they want to be someday. Now, what do you do with that? Do you become arrogant with it? Do you hold them down because they're after your job? Or can you take your credibility and your influence that you have in their life and affirm godliness and godly investment in their life? Hey, listen, captain of the football team, I see that freshman. Listen, man, your effort is something else. The way you helped up that other player, that's the way that we do it here. We play clean, that's what we do. We look at the person looking at us and we affirm godliness and we affirm godly life investment in their life. I've had this happen in my own life. One of my heroes is a guy named Newt Larson. And Newt Larson was a, a big-time pastor here in Akron for a lot of years. And Newt, Newt was at his peak when I was on my climb. So I just thought Newt Larson was the greatest thing that ever happened on the hit. It was like Jesus and Newt Larson. Like, I just thought the world of Newt Larson. And so every time Newt Larson had a meeting, I'd go to the meeting. Every time Newt Larson invited me to do something, I would show up. I would get a letter. It'd be like, hey, friend, we're having a meeting. I'm like, Newt Larson. I'm his friend, right? I mean, that's just the way I thought about Newt Larson. Every time I talked to Newt Larson, I remember everything Newt Larson said. Every time Newt Larson sent me a note, I kept the note. I still have them. I'm like, Newt Larson sent me a note. And every time he walked in the room, I was like, Newt Larson. I, I, just, I just thought he was like incredible. I just thought Newt Larson was, was the greatest thing ever, right? As I was on my climb, Newt was at his peak. And about the time that, that we're kind of getting our legs here at Grace, Newt retired from the church he was pastoring, and it freed up his time. And through a friend, I got kind of access to Newt Larson. So I had this once a month phone meeting for an hour with Newt Larson. And it's fascinating how it worked. When we started that meeting, I, I just had a list of questions like, Newt, what do you do about this? What do you do about that? And he would, Newt always has a list for something. So he's like, well, number one and number two. And like, he would just kind of move through this list. What happened was this, as our relationship became stronger, it's fascinating. And I grew. I no longer needed Newt Larson to tell me what to do. I needed him to tell me that what I was doing was the right thing. It's a very different relationship. I wasn't looking for instructions. I was looking for affirmation, right? Newt, I'm thinking about doing this. And I, I just, I don't know, it's scary. Like a lot of people are critical of it, but I feel like it's the right thing to do. What do you think? Jeff? Be strong, be courageous, don't be afraid, be encouraged, right? New, I made this decision and, and like all these people left the church, I feel really alone and I'm just not sure. I felt like it was the right thing, but everybody's ticked off at me now. What do you think? Jeff, listen, I really believe that you honor God. I really believe that you followed the word of God and, and you're gonna wind up by yourself sometimes. It's just the way that it works. Hey, listen, I'm proud of you. I believe in you. You keep doing. The affirmation that Newt gave me and the courage, see. Now listen, you got, you're somebody's new Larson. Somebody, when you say something to somebody, and you got to fill in your mind, whatever your peak is, you got, I don't know, you got to figure it out. But when you say, when you give the word of encouragement, when you say good job, when you say I'm proud of you, when you say, man, that was a great insight, when you say, hey, listen, you're investing your life in the right thing. Solomon, listen, I believe God called you. I see it, son. Solomon, I believe that you're, gonna, you're making the right investment. Solomon, this is the right path to take the kingdom down. And at our peak, we can use our credibility, our influence, our wealth, all this kind of, we can use it to become an egomaniac. People do it all the time. Or we can take the credibility that we have in people's lives and we can reinvest it back into them for the Lord and for his cause. 
right? Keep it up. Good job. Proud of you. See how that works? Second thing I observed was this, that at our peak, we can utilize our skills. We can utilize our skills for the Lord and His cause. I want to I show you something. If you have a Bible, take it. And I, I just, you can do it on your phone too, but take it. And what I want you to do, I want you to look at chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25, chapter 26, chapter 27, and the beginning of chapter 28, right? Chapter 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. What, what's happening in chapter 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28 is David is utilizing his skills as the king and he is organizing all the parts of the kingdom to come to bear on the building of the temple of the Lord. So when, when you flip through those chapters, you can, you can start to see it. He organizes the priests. He organizes the Levites. He, he organizes the musicians. He organizes the gatekeepers. He organizes the treasury. He organizes the army. He organizes the leader of the tribe. He is, he is running the kingdom and he is bringing the resources to bear of the kingdom on the project to build this temple. Now remember, what does he say? He says, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced. David has run the kingdom for decades. Solomon has never run anything. So David looks and says, I know how to do this. I know how to do this. Come here, Solomon. Come here. You and I, I'm going to show you this is how you organize these guys, and this is how you get these people ready, and this is how you interact with these people. And he, he shows Solomon along the way, this is how you run a kingdom, and through this project of building the temple, I'm going to show you how to manage something that you've never managed before. It's huge. At your peak, guys, well, part of what you do is you take your skills and you utilize them for the next generation and you pass those skills on, your skills will not accomplish anything in the grave. If all you've learned and all the nuances and all the artistry of your vocation or your leadership or your marriage or relationship, if you take all those into the grave with you, it's a waste. But if you pass those down from generation to generation and you utilize those for God in His kingdom, you will amplify the ministry or amplify the work of the next generation. So another hero of mine is a guy named Bob Combs. Bob Combs was the senior pastor of Grace Church when Heidi and I came here, and I took over Bob's church when he retired. Uh, about five years before he retired, Bob called me into his office, and he said, hey, Jeff, he goes, I'm 65. And he said, uh, he said I'm, I, wanna, I wanna go full blast. I wanna retire when I'm 70. He said, will you, will you stay with me five more years? I was like, Bob, you can work till you're 90 and I'll stay with you. I'm not going anywhere. He said, great. He goes, that, that'll give us a window. And he goes, I feel like my health and all the rest, I want to go full blast until I'm 70. I said, okay. He goes, this is what I want you to do. He said, in the next five years, Jeff, I want you to make every change you want to make at Grace Church. And, and then I want to take the blame for it and take all the hits for it. That way, when I retire, 
um, you won't have to change anything and th everything can go on smoothly like nothing even happened. I was like, I'm in on that. I'm in on you taking the blame, right? right? So I'm in on that. So what would happen was this. I would go to Bob. I'd say, Bob, I think we need to make this change. He'd say, well, come on in. Let's work on it. And we'd start working on it and we would think it through together and he would fill in the history and he'd talk about this relationship and this is the way you want to navigate this and you want to communicate it this way. And we'd get it all set up and get the change ready and then Bob would stand up in front of the congregation and say, I've decided to make this change. And everybody who got mad got mad at Bob. Meantime, like Jeff is like skating free. Nothing ever happened to me, right? We did this with the facility. One of the changes I want to made was one of our campuses, I wanted to pull the, the pews and the organs out of. And like, Bob, the pews and the organs got to go. He's like, okay. He's like, come on in. So we went in. I said, we, right, we got to do this. He's like, well, I want you to remember that like, this person's grandmother bought that organ, so we need to communicate with them. The pews were this, and all these folks, when we built that building, gave all this money to buy those pews, so it means something to them. So we could communicate this way and this way and this way and make these changes. And we got it all organized and Bob stood up and said, I've decided to pull the pews and the organs out of the auditorium. What? We hate you, Bob Combs. I was like, yeah, I do too, Bob. Right? And, uh, so, and it, it, he passed on, he still does it. Bob's healthy and alive and well, but he still passes on his skills. See, he took the time, he created a window, he brought in someone to learn. Guys, listen, at your peak, the young inexperienced can be a threat or they can be a legacy. It all depends on how you view them. See? And I'm saying in the kingdom of God, they're always a legacy. They're not a threat. They're not a threat to us. They're the, the, they're the, the continuation of our life's work. And David taught, he didn't hoard that to the grave so his son didn't overthrow him. What if people like Solomon more than me? He said, come here, son. Come on, I'm going to teach you all this. Show you how to organize it all. Teach you how to navigate all these relationships, right? So that at my, at my peak, I'm going to invest in you. So the great legacy that I want to live, the temple I, that I, God won't let me build, you're going to live my dream. I'm going to tee it up for you. Here's the third observation is this one that when I am at my peak, I need to pass on God-given vision. This is fascinating. I want you to catch this. It's huge. Look what David says in chapter 28 now. Move forward to chapter 28. Look at verse 11. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. Look at this. Verse 12 is huge. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put on his mind. The Spirit there is the Spirit of God, or who we would call the Holy Spirit. In other words, this building, remember the Old Testament's different than the New. So the Old Testament, the building was the place that God resided. In the New Testament, the Bible says that Christians are the temple of God. In the Old Testament, the building was. So these plans, these blueprints are divinely inspired so the Spirit of God divinely inspired these blueprints to David. David is now sharing the divinely inspired blueprints with Solomon. In fact, he goes on, verse 19, same chapter. He says, all this, David said, all this I have in writing as a result of the Lord's hand on me, and he enabled me to understand all the details of this plan. This, what's happening here is mind-boggling. What David is saying to his son is this, listen, God interacted with me uniquely. 
He didn't, God didn't divinely inspire the plans to Solomon. He gave them to David. God has given me a vision. God put this temple on my heart. God, I, I'm the one motivated to do it, but God doesn't want his name associated with a warrior. So I'm going to take God's vision that was divinely inspired to me, and I'm going to pass it on to you, son, and I'm going to entrust you with it. Okay, now catch this. This is massive. Ready? Here it is. Catch this. God-given vision is not owned by me. Catch that? God-given vision is not owned by me. It's owned by God. And when God gives me a vision or gives you a vision, I am not the one who determines what to do with it. God is determining what to do with it. That vision is not given to you and me to build us up. That vision is given to you and I to be entrusted, to be passed on so that God's name is built up. So let me give you a for instance. So for instance, here at Grace Church, the vision of Grace Church is 30 and 30. Our big goal is to plant 30 churches in 30 years, 30 campuses in 30 years, right? I, I, would, I would say that's what God has called us to, to, to do. The elders have affirmed that. They would say, yeah, that's God's vision. And then as a congregation, ours and all the other campuses, we have affirmed that. You've put your money where your mouth is a gazillion times, right? So we all are excited and believe in 30 and 30 and believe that's the main vision of our church. That vision is not mine. It's God's. That vision is not even yours. It's God. It's a vision that we have been entrusted with. It's not ours to own. This is what happens. When I take God-given vision and I write myself in as the main character of God's narrative, I will distort that vision, distract from that vision, and I will cause that vision to lose its eternal power. So if I take 30 and 30 and say, 30 and 30 is my vision, and I am the focal point of that vision. Therefore, everything that happens in 30 to 30 has to have Jeff Bogue attached to it. So we have the Jeff Bogue Memorial Norton Campus, the Jeff Bogue Memorial Norton Ellett Campus, and Jeff Bogue has a way of leading. Therefore, you, you all will become Bulgarians. There's Calvinists, there's Arminiists, and there's Bulgarians. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to preach Jeff Bogue books and everything Jeff said. There's going to be a statue of Jeff outside in the fountain. And that's where it's going to be bronze. And it's going to be muscular and beautiful like Jeff, right? And that's what it's going to be. If I make myself the focal point, what we're going to do is we're going to build a bigger auditorium in one place so that more people can come and experience the wonder of Jeff Bogue, right? What happens is that vision is going to die with me right? So I get, I get my hooray in life. God is going to move on and entrust his vision to somebody else. If you own that vision and make yourself the focal point of it, what happens is you won't turn it over to the next, the next generation. This is our church. We paid for it. I paid for this building, right? And, and we worked at it. And who are you to come in with your crazy music? You kids getting rid of the drums and the guitars, bringing the organs in. What next? You're going to wear shoes, right? right? So you're going to start, start, start tucking your shirts in. What is this liberalness going on? And we'll start to overown what is God's. It's not ours. You can do that in your life. You can overown your kids. Your vision for a healthy family, it's not your vision, it's God's vision. You can overown that. You can overown your marriage. It's not God, God's, we want a healthy marriage. That's not your vision, that's God's vision. That comes straight from the Word of God. 
God-given vision belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. And David is exercising this. He's the one that has the divinely inspired blueprints for the building that will hold the very presence of God. And he gives it to his son. See? It's not my my vision, son. I wanted to, but God said no. It's his vision. Here, I want to explain it to you. I want to teach you. This is how you organize for it. This is how you tee it up. This is what we go for. This is what we believe in. But this is God's. And now I pass it to you. And what the, the big play out of God's vision in David's life is going to happen after he's dead. See? We don't call it the Davidic temple. We call it the so- Solomon's temple. David's name isn't even attached to it. Solomon built it. But the vision that God entrusted to David, David entrusted to his son. Here's the last thing I observed as I was going through this, chapter 29. If you want to pass on or invest at your peak, you need to spend your influence. You need, it's, influence is a currency, and you need to spend it, not hoard it. It's fascinating. David spent his influence in several ways. What he does here in chapter 29 is he calls what's called the assembly. So he calls all the leader and all the people uh, of kind of Israel together or representatives of them all together. 10,000, 20,000 people, right? So they're all together. They're coming because of David's influence and David's credibility. So King David calls a meeting. Everybody shows up to the meeting, right? New Larson calls a meeting. Everybody goes to the meeting, right? It's just the way that works. No big deal. So David, they come because the king, because his credibility, his influence, his, his godliness, his influence. So they all show up at the assembly. And what he does at the assembly is fascinating. He spends his influence, he invests it. So he does it in a few ways. First one is this, verse one. Then King David said to the whole assembly, my son Solomon, the one who God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. Fascinating. So here's David. This is his big crescendo, right? This could be like a, we love you, David, concert kind of a thing. Big cheering, let's build the statues, all that kind of stuff. What David does at his peak, at his crescendo, is he said, listen, this is what I want you to know. You trust me, right? Right. You believe in me, right? Right. You know that God's worked through me, right? Right. I have influence on your life, right? Right. Listen, I want to tell you something. God has chosen Solomon. Everything that you would give to me, give it to him. The way that you would follow me, follow him. He's the one now. God's hand was on me. Thank you. I love you. God's hand's on this kid. He's young and inexperienced. Right, that's why we're going to help him. He's not dumb and inadequate. He's not incapable. He just doesn't have miles on him yet. But God's hand is on him. And I want to take my credibility and my trust and my influence, and I want you to transfer it to him. It's huge. Trust him now. Believe in him. He's going to make mistakes. Of course he is. No big deal. Don't criticize him. Help him. Right? But he's the one that's going to lead us forward. He's the one that's going to fulfill this dream. And instead of dying with all of his influence, he spent it on Solomon. Now, he did it in a second way. Here it is. David then goes on 
He talks about how I have organized the finances of the kingdom to be invested in the temple of God. This thing was unbelievable. If you ever want to be blown, or if you're an architecture student, read the makeup of the temple. It'll blow your mind. So he says, I, I've organized basically the treasury or the economy of Israel to do this. But then he did something else, right? He spent his influence. Verse 3, he does this. Besides all of the economy of Israel, besides that, in my devotion to the temple of the Lord, uh, the, the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasure of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. He spends his money. I'm at the peak. I got more money than I'm ever going to make, right? I'm, 40, I'm 46 years old. If I go till I'm 72 like I want to, if nothing interrupts that, I'm going to make more money in the next 25, 27 years of my life than I'm ever going to make at any other time in my life. David did too. He acquired all this wealth. And he looks at everybody and says, listen, trust my son. I am going all in with my son. So I arranged the finances of this, but I, I'm writing my personal check out to this project for God. Guys, this is huge. Why does God give you money at your peak? Why is that? Our culture would say, so you can do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it. And, and some that's fine. It's no big deal. But mostly what happens is this. At our peak, we buy better versions or newer versions of what we already have. And none of it's eternal. It won't last. It's not even going to affect your family long term. 25 years after you're dead, your kids aren't going to live in your house. They're not going to care about your house. 25 years after you're dead, your kids aren't going to drive your car. They're going to make fun of your car. They're going to look at the dad's car didn't even hover. Right? They're going to make fun of your car. They're going to think it's dumb. 25 years after you're dead, they're not going to, they're going to watch your flat screen. They're going to think your flat screen's a piece of junk. Right? Why did God give you this money? The, the only physical structure that your kids might use 25 years after you're dead is the one you're sitting in right now. Other than that, they're going to move on with their own lives, right? So why does God give you the wealth He's got given you? Why, why, why are you at the peak of your earning potential? David's setting an example, and he's looking and saying, guys, listen, I'm cashing in my credibility. God's chosen my son. And he says, I'm cashing in the bank. My money is going into that temple because that's eternal. That's magnificent. That's spectacular. That proclaims the glory and the fame and the name of my God. My son's going to steward that. I trust him. You should trust him. And I'm in with everything that I have. He spent his credibility he spent his cash, and then this is fascinating, ready? He spends his network of relationships. Look what happens next, look at verse 6. Now, who is willing to, to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Ready? Here it is. Then the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work of the temple of God. This is fascinating. So David's at his peak, and he's buddies with a bunch of other people that are at their peak, right? Because that's the way that happens. Kind of the generations come up together. Some of us have been friends a long time. We were all young, dumb, and poor together. And now we're all like middle age, right? 
So you come up together. So David is looking and saying, listen, not only am I giving my credibility to Solomon, I'm giving my cash to Solomon, I want my network to get behind what he's doing too. And so David leads the way. So my, the leaders of the families, the leaders of the tribes, the leaders of the army, the leaders of the kings were, ever, let's all get behind what God's about ready to do. And let's build this temple together. And David exercised those networks, said, guys, come on, are you with me? And all of his buddies came with him and gave willingly and sacrificially to build that, to do the work and the cause of God. Now I want you to see something. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole thing. Verse nine, as all these leaders now, because now it's not just David, now it's all the leaders, all the people at the peak, all the influencers. As they go and they get behind the work of the temple, look at verse nine. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders. Who are those people? Those people are the people on the climb. And they're looking and saying, oh, look at that. The, the guys, the men, the women that we respected, they're legit. They, they were, they, they're taking everything they have and they're giving it to the Lord and to his cause. They're walking up there, they're lining up, they're invested in the Lord and his cause. They, they, everything that they said we should believe in, everything they said we should do and everything they laid out for us, they're actually exercising it and the people rejoice that their leaders are legitimately the people that they said that they were, that they thought that they were, that they hoped that they were and now that they know they are. Fascinating. David, I'm in on this kid. Here's the check. Hey, buddies, let's do something for the Lord. Instead of the new hood ornament, let's do something for God. In and inspired the people on the climb. I had had an awesome thing happen about three or four weeks ago. Uh, the Norton campus of, of Grace Church is the mother campus uh, of Grace Church, right? And so there's a, there's a guy down there named Dwight Stair. 99% of you wouldn't know who Dwight Stair is, okay? So Dwight Stair was a guy that, that uh, was a, a layperson. He was a, an executive over at Firestone when their headquarters was still here in Akron and uh, just was a normal church person he and some buddies got together and they wanted to plan a new church down in Norton. So D- Dwight was like the leader and on the board and the Norton, the Norton campus got off to a really rocky start. So staff didn't work out and people coming and going and the finances and it really didn't get a good uh, footing at all in the beginning. And Dwight tells this very famous story in the history of Grace Church. He's the influencer I bet you anything he was basically the budget down there, right? And they had all these frustrations and he said, I decided that enough was enough. And I decided it was time to throw in the towel and just close down the the Norton Church. Remember, Norton Church planted us and all of our other campuses ultimately, right? So he lived in Wadsworth, was headed into Norton for this meeting. He had decided that he was gonna cast the vote to close the church down. Everybody listened to Dwight Stair because he was at his peak. On his way from Wadsworth to Norton, Dwight would say, the Lord spoke to me. (laughs) And the Lord told me, don't close the church down. And he said, I prayed about it on the drive in. I got to the meeting. It all looked like we should shut it down, but I told everybody, I don't think we should. He used his influence. 
He wrote the check and he said, let's keep it open and see what God does, okay? Church stays open. After that, Bob Combs came. Bob Combs then and Dwight Stair. Bob was the pastor, Dwight was the lay leader. They started working on this church. That was almost 50 years ago. Grace Church has a 50-year record of unbroken growth. We have grown every year for 50 years. A few weeks ago, I went down to Norton because they paid their campus off. So we're going to burn the mortgage, and I'm going to shoot a video for it. So I go down there for the mortgage burning, me, Pastor Dan, and here comes Dwight and Bob. I watch these guys, and they're old. Bob's in his late 70s, Dwight's in his early 80s. They're old now, right? And they come hobbling out there to burn this thing. And I looked at these guys, I thought, these guys, none of us exist without these guys, right? None of us exist without these guys. I looked at Dwight, I said, is, I said, is this fun for you? He said, Jeff, he said, this is emotional for me. I said, Dwight, that day when you were driving down, did you ever think God would use you this way? He said, I never dreamed of it. It was right after Easter that we burned this morning. At Easter, Grace Church, we had a little over 10,000 people come to Grace Church. I said, Dwight, when you were ready to shut it down, did you ever think that we'd have 10,000 people come through Grace Church? I looked at those guys, I said, you guys, you're my heroes, right? You dreamt it up, you paid for it, you built it. Every building we've built, we built under those, their leadership. You organized it. We still run the financial systems Dwight Stair put in place 50 years ago. Our accountability, our integrity, those kind of things. That's all him. You built it. You turned it over, and now you paid it off. That is an incredible run, an incredible run. Here's the thing. You don't know who Dwight Stair is, and when he hears the recording of this conversation, he's going to kill me for telling you who Dwight Stair is. Why? This is not about Dwight Stair. It wasn't Dwight Stair's vision. It was God's vision. He invested in it at his peak. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars Dwight and Bob have poured into this place to build buildings, right? We, we, we give, I, Heidi and I do, we give to these financial campaigns too. Like you, you look and say a lifetime of investment. But look what God has done. And there's no statues of Dwight there. There's never going to be one. There's no Bob Combs memorial, whatever, and there's never going to be one. Because it was for Christ and his cause. And literally tens of thousands of people know about Jesus. Be because these guys at their peak, they kind of passed on the American dream. They didn't live miserable lives, they just drove used cars. And they built into the vision of God in the eternal. I want to be like them when I grow up. I kind of want to be forgotten about, to be honest with you. 
But if the Lord's fame and the Lord's name, we're sitting here 6,000 years later, still affected by the temple and the truth and the hope that resided in it, that David built, that David passed on, that Solomon built. You see how that works? I don't want to miss out on that for a flat screen. For an upgrade. I, right, we enjoy all that. Every good and perfect thing comes from God. It's fine. Those things are fine. They really are. There's no biblical square footage of house. That's, don't false guilt. But, but when, I, when I'm thinking about my life investment, like th- this is going to be fun and enjoyable in the moment, and that's fine. This is going to be eternal. It's going to echo forever. And we have been invited by God to be in on that. See? You think about why God has given you what he's given you and how you should spend it and what you could do with it, right? Why are you at your peak? What are you going to do while you're there? God has you in your right now for a reason. Whatever it is, good, bad, indifferent, he's got you in your right now for a reason. He wants to do something in you and he wants to do something through you. And if we invest at our peak, that investment will be eternal. It will change people's lives. And I think when we see the Lord, when we look back on our lives, I'm really confident those are the things we're going to value the most, care about. And our God has invited us to participate, all right? Why don't we just take a few minutes and, and pray? Why don't you bow your heads if you want? Just be still for a little bit. And maybe think about your investment at your peak. This isn't all like when you die, who you're going to leave your money to. This is at your peak. What's your investment now? Is it, is it purposeful? Is it eternal, right? Is it valuable? Or is it just something else, right? And how do you take what God has entrusted you with, pass it to other people, and give it to him to build his, his kingdom and his cause, right? Jesus, help us with this. Me too, God. I, I get distracted. I want stuff, right? We all do. And it's fine. I, you give us those things. I don't think we need to feel guilty. But Lord, to weigh, weigh the value of the new thing with the value of the eternal thing. To weigh enjoying the treasures of earth in lieu of missing the opportunity to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. God, clarify our thinking and clarify our heart and help us to embrace the right now for all of the reasons, God, that you entrust us with it. So God, in these still moments, would you drop our defenses and open our minds and open our hearts, give you free reign to adjust and move in us, and uh, Lord, to, to have the heart and to have the view that, uh, that matches yours 
and to spend our life the way that, that you spent yours. Be with us in these still moments, Jesus, in your name. Amen.